What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. It's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And on the line with us is Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste specialist at beyondnuclear.org. You can also tweet him at Beyond Nuclear. And uh, Kevin, welcome back to the program. I have to ask this question based on some of your reporting. Could we have a Fukushima-style nuclear disaster meltdown happen in Michigan? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. Fermi Unit 2, which is south of Detroit, is the largest Fukushima Daiichi twin design on the planet. It's supersized. It's as big as Fukushima Daiichi Units 1 and 2, both of which did melt down in 2011. It's as big as both of them put together. And to make the risks even greater, they have just deferred yet again not for years, but for decades at this point, but they've done it just again, a major safety repair. It's called the Taurus. It's a donut-shaped system, and it's huge in size, and it's got this flaking inner liner that, during an emergency situation, could block the flow of coolant water to the overheating core. So they're willing to risk that potential for another couple years at this point. Who owns that, and why are they making this decision? It's owned by DTE Energy, formerly known as Detroit Edison, and they're really using the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse that they don't want to have a large number of workers in this structure close together. It can wait two more years. They've not even done the risk assessment. That's one of the things our emergency enforcement petition is calling for. And we have the advice of uh, Dave Lockbaum, a retired nuclear engineer who used to serve at Union of Concerned Scientists. So he wrote a technical report on the situation, and the number one request we have, this demand for information, is a formal risk assessment that Detroit Edison is fully capable of performing. They just haven't. And the other couple requests are a list of the tasks they've deferred in addition to the one I've just described. And then finally, what impacts does COVID-19 have on emergency planning, emergency preparedness, both on-site at the nuclear plant and off-site in terms of evacuations? Because, of of course, shelter in place to stay safe and emergency evacuations are uh, contradictory. Is this Fermi-2 reactor outside Detroit the only reactor in the United States that we need to worry about in this context? No, I'm afraid we need to worry about all of them in the COVID-19 context because NRC is just granting industry wishes left, right, and center. They're using this as an excuse to defer safety inspections, to defer repairs, maintenance, and even just looking at the fatigue limits for workers. They've increased allowable work hours from 72 hours per week up to 86, and per day from 12 Whoa. up to 16. So they're, they're counting on people getting sick. And in fact, COVID-19 was first documented, reported by Bloomberg at Fermi Unit 2 on March 30th, and there's every indication that it was there before that. So what's really scary is when control room operators start getting sick, the industry does not have a deep bench. And so they're literally talking about sequestering control room staffs not letting them interact with others by keeping them at the nuclear plant and supplied 
And they're even requesting to cut in line on personal protective equipment in front of hospitals and other emergency responders to what they would say safely operate nuclear plants. The sick part is that there's an electricity glut. They don't need to be operating these nuclear plants in most parts of the country. For safety's sake, they could simply shut them down until the pandemic is over. But no, they're doing quite the opposite. Well, these are, my understanding is the vast majority of the nuclear power plants in the United States are not owned by public utilities that would have the public's interest in mind. They're owned by private for-profit companies that are just going to try and sell as much electricity out of that plant as they possibly can, even if they're competing with other things in the state. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. Detroit Edison is uh, shareholder-owned, and it's true that they, you know, maximize profits by cutting corners on safety. And man, if we had renewables and efficiency in place as the standard, you know, solar panels and wind turbines could operate during a pandemic with little to no maintenance and not these humongous safety risks going on. Yeah, and they could also operate even without the the COVID. We're talking with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste specialist with BeyondNuclear.org. Kevin, broadly speaking, what is the state of our nuclear waste situation in the United States. I, you know, I know that there was this whole Yucca Mountain debate and Harry Reid got involved in it. Nevada wasn't happy about it. Then there was talk about, you know, dumping nuclear waste in Texas. And I've heard about other states. Where are we at and, and what's going on with nuclear waste, generally speaking, in the United States? Well, those consolidated interim storage facilities, this plan B, because they can't get away with Yucca down in Texas and New Mexico, that is really hitting the fan right now. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has just published its draft environmental impact statement on the New Mexico proposal, soon to be followed by the Texas one. And incredibly, they are conducting these public comment proceedings in the middle of a pandemic with deadlines attached. And so there's complete pushback against that. Yeah, open the public comment period, but don't enforce a deadline. And we're, in fact, demanding, as is the New Mexico congressional delegation, that the in-person public comment meetings still take place after the pandemic ends. If they want to hold webinars, that's great. We'll take part. But those in-person meetings still have to happen. It's our right. It's an American tradition. And they're trying to slam it through just to check that box and proceed to licensing. That's what they're up to. What are other countries, I know Germany has a bunch of nuclear power plants, what are other countries doing about the situation? Well, with the waste, Germany really is a world example where the anti-nuclear movement said no to a proposed dump site. The German government went forward anyway and tried to move the waste in for what they called interim storage, but it's right next door to the permanent dump site targeted. So people block the roads, they block the rails year after year after year for decades by the tens of thousands, and they really stopped those dumps. And thankfully, because it turned out that the geology was unsuitable, the German government had kept that secret. So that was the the heartbeat of the German anti-nuclear movement that led to the nuclear power phase out in Germany. And so by 2022, the final reactor will shut down. They're going to replace not only nuclear, but they're going to replace most fossil fuel with renewables and efficiency. And it'll take some years and even decades to completely phase out or largely phase out fossil fuel combustion, but they're working on it. And they're the fourth largest economy on the planet. We have more renewable resources than Germany by far. We could do it too. We just choose not to. Hmm. Wow. Talking with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste specialist with beyondnuclear.org. Where can people, outside of going to beyondnuclear.org, which is kind of a given, where can people focus their activism on these issues? Man, we'd really welcome help on fighting this New Mexico dump. We now have until July 21st to try to break our own records from the past. We've generated nearly 150,000 comments against the New Mexico and Texas dumps in earlier stages of this proceeding, and we'd love to break that record and show the NRC that they're not going to get away with approving this thing. So please, yeah, visit our website, beyondnuclear.org, and we'll try to have sample comments you can use and where to send them and how to ask for one of these hearings where you live, because the mobile Chernobyl issue, getting it to New Mexico affects all of us. Are there any states that are moving in the direction of Germany to shut things down? Oh, yeah. Record-breaking number of reactor shutdowns, including Indian Point Unit 2 near New York City by the end of this month. 
That's good news. Good news. Kevin yeah. Camps with BeyondNuclear.org. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, Tom. Take care. So nuclear power is being sold as the thing that's going to save us from climate change. It's not. Not only does it take mind-boggling amounts of carbon to even build a nuclear power plant, all that concrete, all that steel, all that stuff that has to be hauled in and transported, and then you got to mine the uranium, and then you got to ship it, and all this kind of stuff. But now the industry is out with their handout. 20 years ago, we subsidized the industry to the tune of $100 billion, and that's not the unquantifiable amount from the Price-Anderson Act where we insure nuclear power plants as well. These are just subsidies, and now we've got a whole set of brand new subsidies that companies in New York and Ohio and Pennsylvania and New Jersey are coming to the ratepayers. It's mind-boggling. We've got a whole video about it that lays out all the details over at TomHartman.com, and you can get over there and check it out. It's pretty amazing stuff, and nuclear power, no panacea. In fact, it's a big problem. Check it out at TomHartman.com. Thank you. So we got a geeky science alert here. This is just an absolutely amazing story. It's over at Inside Climate News. And essentially what they're saying is that our flood risk, our mudslide risk, our drought risk, all these things are going up dramatically because these giant rivers of air in the upper atmosphere are getting bigger, they're moving faster, but most importantly, they're getting denser. They hold more moisture. And of course, they are what causes weather down here at the surface. This is climate causing weather. And so as the climate changes, as these rivers of air get more intense, the weather on the ground gets more intense. Our storms are worse, our winds are higher, and the amount of water that falls, the rains are worse. But because it's more concentrated in these specific high, high moisture rivers of air, the air around it is actually drier. And so the places that are being hit by the air around them are getting droughts, and the places that are underneath these rivers of air are getting floods. So this is just, you know, consequence one of global climate change, something that was predicted for a long time. We're actually seeing it now. And it's not pretty. It's not a good thing. Tom Harbin here with you. And I just wanted to go through a few things here. A couple of months ago, I was telling stock up on a couple of weeks worth of food. And then, boom, we suddenly saw, you know, the, everything happening with the supermarkets. Some people got alarmed by that, and I apologize if you were alarmed by that comment. I am not of the opinion that our food supply is on the verge of collapsing. It is going to get difficult and challenging. A lot of the food you're seeing plowed into the ground by farmers and things is food that was designed for restaurants, for commercial use, where there's enormous waste. Restaurants, in some cases, you know, a third of the food that comes in as raw material gets thrown away. With home use, it's much, much lower. Homes tend to be much more efficient in their use of food. And so I'm not anticipating that big crisis. But what I am seeing or concerned about is the lack of fresh things. We need to eat green stuff regularly. And, you know, some people are concerned about getting it just for fear that it's been handled by other people. Also, you know, there are concerns that it may get harder and harder to find. I know for a while there, it was very, very hard for us to find green things here in, in northern Portland, although we've, you know, now we can get them from the stores. In fact, one of our food co-ops is delivering now through one of the local delivery services, and that's really kind of cool. But I think, you know, just for general health, it's always a great idea to grow some vegetables. It's just, you know, it's a very satisfying thing, and it's a very therapeutic thing, particularly when you're locked up at home, you know, and we're all, we're all stashed indoors. So uh, we're experimenting with this and, you know, Louise's garden, our garden this year is going to be much larger than in past years. And you know, I just encourage people to do that. James in Muskegon, Michigan. Hey, James, what's up? Uh, Tom, I wanted to talk a little bit about we have a national storage problem for oil. And of mm -hmm. course, the price of oil dropped through the ceiling. And now they're looking at paying the oil companies to keep the oil on the ground. And I just right. got a different idea. There's 279, okay, million, 279 million registered vehicles in the United States. There's a lot of empty storage space. And if we did away with the gas tax for one month and encourage people to fill up their tanks and keep them filled up, that's a whole lot of fuel. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not all that interested, frankly, in trying to save the oil companies. 
I mean, well, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of small frackers go out of business right now, but they shouldn't have been in business in the first place. They, these companies were heavily leveraged. Their business plan was borrow a bunch of money from the bank, frack a whole bunch of oil, sell that oil at a profit, you know, and then bankrupt the small company before the time to clean up the mess comes due. I mean, that literally has been what's been happening all across the country. Now it's just happening much more rapidly because of the collapse of the price of this stuff. But this was always a scam industry, essentially. Well, we're going to pay the oil companies anyways because it's in the ground. And this is a big break for consumers. Yeah, okay. You know, we'll see. James, thanks for the call. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind today? Where is the Democratic Congress's accountability? How can they let this get by another $2 trillion into the wealthy pockets? This This is extraordinary. Yeah, well, first of all, this piece that I was outraged by, and I think there's broad outrage across the board, is not $2 trillion. It's 86, as I recall, maybe $83 billion out of the larger package that's going to go to these 43,000 millionaires who make their money with real estate. And the way it works is, if you happen to have huge capital gains, because let's say you happen to be an insider in the White House and you happen to know when Donald Trump is going to say things that will drive up or down the cost of oil or Boeing stock or whatever it may be, and you're buying and selling massive amounts of stock, and we have no way of knowing who in the White House is doing this and who isn't because they've been denying every subpoena, every attempt at oversight. They're completely stonewalling everything. But there's no doubt in my mind, these guys, you know, there was that one trade where Trump came out and lied about the oil supply and the price of oil jumped up. And there, was, there were a couple of trades out of Washington, D.C. That, that showed a billion dollar profit. And I'm guessing that was Jared Kushner or Don Jr. But anyhow, if you've got a hundred million or a thousand million dollar, billion dollar profit from your stock trades and you're losing money on your hotels or golf courses under this one little sentence that was slipped into the bill, and it doesn't even say it like this. It says, you know, code 301-5 will be modified to say that code 507-3 will apply. Right. In other words, you can offset real estate losses with stock gains or vice versa. You can offset stock gains with real estate losses. That got built into there. Nobody caught it. None of the Democrats caught it. This was, I would say, purely for the Trump crime family. And I agree with you, Steve. Stephen. It is discouraging, but it's not the whole thing. And the Democrats have been really trying to do their best on oversight on this thing. And now they're holding the line. You know, Mitch McConnell has this $300 billion package that was entirely written by lobbyists. It's all gifts to billionaires and big corporations. And Mitch McConnell wants to ram this through Congress. And Nancy Pelosi is saying, no, we're going to help people, average working people. And Maxine Waters' suggestion of $2,000 a month until this thing is resolved, going out to everybody, that's gaining popularity. And Mitch McConnell is coming out going, well, the Democrats are being obstructionists. And he's all over Fox News and all his Republican buddies. Oh, the Democrats are trying to block another, another bailout that could help you. And they're you know, lying through their teeth like they usually do. But Pelosi and the Democrats and Chuck Schumer are holding strong on this. So it's not quite as bad as it might seem. And, and you know, I think that we need to, at the very least, cut them a little slack. Stephen, thank you for the call. Paul in San Diego. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, what's up from one Michigander to another? Speaking of Michiganders, I had a chance to watch Michael Moore's new movie, Planet of the Humans. I was wondering if you had a chance to see it yet, and I was wondering... I didn't even know about about it. it. It's actually a pretty bleak picture, but when he talks about... It's about sustainable energy and how the entire sustainable energy pitch is built on fossil fuel infrastructure. In other words, I don't want to say it's a lie, but we're being sold something that isn't the case. You know, we're being sold this idea of clean, renewable energy, but you can't make solar panels without burning tons of coal. You can't run. Oh, right. I wrote there's a whole chapter in Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight about that, that it's going to take a long time before we've got enough renewable energy to produce essentially blast furnace levels of heat and energy to to make glass, to make steel. Uh, things like that, it's going to be very, very difficult. But if we focused, if we took all the fossil fuels out of basically transportation and energy generation, those are massive parts of our fossil fuel consumption, and just left 
the byproducts that we make, you know, plastics and, and pharmaceuticals and things, and the energy, super energy intensive systems like making steel and making glass, you know, that's a step. I mean, is he talking about that as a transition? It's Transition doesn't even sound like an option in the way he talks about the film. I really hope you do watch it and talk about it later, you know, a really like in-depth perspective. Where can on I it. find it, Paul? YouTube. It's all on YouTube. It's free. Planet of the Humans. Basically, he's saying, I mean, it's really grim, man. He's basically saying that he presents it almost as like a problem of energetics, right? Like we can't mm-hmm. have these convenient touch button instant things without using it. It takes tons of energy to do that. And if we do that fast, I mean, this is my own interpretation here. These aren't his words. But by doing these things conveniently and fast, that energy is still being used up. And so we're trying to find different ways of getting energy that's clean, but it's, it's not really clean. Um, yeah, there is a chicken and egg problem. I was surprised to hear Michael Moore saying this. Yeah. So no, it's a serious it. issue. Very serious. You know, he, he calls out the Sierra Club. He calls out 350.org. He ties them to the billionaires who are spending, you know, all this money. And even these organizations are still tied to fossil fuel oil executives and stuff. So he paints this really bleak picture that basically anyone selling energy in any kind is contributing to the end of the world. So yeah. Doomed, now that said, I saw, and I believe this was in Nature in their newsletter a couple of days ago, they showed the graph of fossil fuel emissions over the last mm-hmm. 50 years or so. And then they showed where the IPCC says it needs to go, the direction that that graph needs to go rapidly, you know, to resolve this issue within now we're eight years out from a disaster point. And overlaid on where they said we needed to go was the actual energy consumption right now around the world, which is collapsing. That's why oil is, you know, selling for less than zero. And we're actually right now following the IPCC's suggestion. Now, 30 million people out of work, it's, it's going to be a challenge, but it can be done. I, you know, Paul, thank you for the call. I, I'll have to check out Michael Moore's new movie. Thank you. We'll be back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's, or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Our book today is Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster by Adam Higginbotham. This is from the prologue. <clears throat> Saturday, April 26, 1986, 4.16 p.m., Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, Ukraine. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men love their wives. Tall and good-looking, 26 years old, with close-cropped dark hair and ice-blue eyes, Logoshev had joined the Soviet Army when he was still a boy. They had trained him well. The instructors from the military academy outside Moscow taught him with lethal poisons and unshielded radiation. He traveled to the testing grounds of Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan and to the desolate East Urals Trace, where the fallout from a clandestine radioactive accident still poisoned the landscape. Eventually, Logachev's training took him even to the remote and forbidden islands of Novaya Zemlya, high in the Arctic Circle, and ground zero for the detonation of the terrible Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device in history. Now, as the lead radiation reconnaissance officer of the 427th Red Banner Mechanized Regiment of the Kiev District Civil Defense Force, Logachev knew how to protect himself and his three-man crew from nerve agents, biological weapons, gamma rays, and hot particles, by doing their work just as the textbooks dictated, by trusting his dosimetry equipment, and when necessary, reaching for the nuclear, bacterial, and chemical warfare medical kits stored in the cockpit of their armored car. But he also believed that the best protection was psychological. These men who allowed themselves to fear radiation were most at risk. But those who came to love and appreciate its spectral presence, to understand its caprices, could endure even the most intense gamma bar bombardment and emerge as healthy as before. As he sped through the suburbs of Kiev that morning at the head of a, a column of more than 30 vehicles summoned to an emergency at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, Logoshev had every reason to feel confident. The spring air blowing through the hatches of his armored scout car carried the smell of the trees and the freshly cut grass. His men gathered on the parade ground just the night before for their monthly inspection were drilled and ready. At his feet, a battery of radiological detection instruments, including a newly installed electronic device twice as sensitive as the old model, murmured softly, revealing nothing unusual in the atmosphere around them. But as they finally approached the plant later that morning, it became clear that something extraordinary had happened. The alarm on the radiation dosimeter first sounded as they passed the concrete signpost marking the perimeter of the power station grounds, and the lieutenant gave orders to stop the vehicle and log their findings. 51 Rochins per hour. If they waited here just 60 minutes, they would all absorb the maximum dose of radiation permitted Soviet troops during wartime. They drove on following the line of high voltage transmission towers that marched toward the horizon in the direction of the power plant. Their readings climbed still further before falling again. Then as the armored car rumbled along the concrete bank of the station's cooling canal, the outline of the fourth unit of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant finally became visible and Logoshev and his crew gazed at it in silence. The roof of the 20-story building had been torn open, its other upper levels blackened and collapsed into heaps of rubble. They could see shattered panels of ferro-concrete, tumbled blocks of graphite, and here and there the glittering metal casings of fuel assemblies from the core of a nuclear reactor. A cloud of steam drifted from the wreckage into the sunlit sky. Yet they had orders to conduct a full reconnaissance of the plant. Their armored car crawled counterclockwise around the complex at 10 kilometers an hour. Sergeant Vlaskin called out the radiation readings from the new instruments, and Logoshev scribbled them down on a map, hand-drawn on a sheet of parchment paper and ballpoint pen and colored marker. One Rochin per hour, then two, then three, 
They turned left and the figures began to rise quickly. 10, 30, 50, 100, 250 Russians an hour, the sergeant shouted, his eyes widening. Comrade Lieutenant, he began and pointed at the radiometer. Logoshev looked down at the digital readout and felt his scalp prickle with terror. 2,080 Rochins an hour, an impossible number. Logoshev struggled to remain calm and remember the textbook to conquer his fear, but his training failed him, and the lieutenant heard himself screaming in panic at the driver, petrified that the vehicle would stall. Why are you going this way, you son of a bee? Are you out of your effing mind? If this thing dies, we'll all be corpses in 15 minutes. Part 1, Chapter 1, The Soviet Prometheus At the slow beat of approaching rotor blades, blackbirds rose into the sky, scattering over the frozen meadows and the pearly knots of creeks and ponds, lacing the Pripyat River Basin. Far below, standing knee-deep in snow, his breath lingering in heavy clouds, Viktor Brukhanov awaited the arrival of the nomenklatura from Moscow. When the helicopter touched down, the delegation of ministers and Communist Party officials trudged together over the icy field. The savage cold gnawed at their heavy woolen coats and nipped beneath their tall fur hats. The head of the Ministry of Energy and Electrification of the USSR and senior party bosses from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine joined Brukhanov at the spot where their audacious new project was to begin. Just 34 years old, clever and ambitious, a dedicated party man, Brukhanov had come to western Ukraine with orders to begin building what would become the greatest nuclear power station on Earth. Midnight in Chernobyl. On the line with us today is Dr. Andrew Glickson. He is a climate scientist, research scientist with the Australian National University. Recently wrote a piece published by The Conversation about Earth hurtling toward a catastrophe worse than the dinosaur extinction while we're all obsessing on the coronavirus. Dr. Glickson, welcome to our program. Yeah, thank you very much. You note that you are an Earth and paleoclimate scientist, and you've spent years, uh, perhaps most of your life, looking at climate changes and mass extinction and the relationship between the two. And you mentioned the two most recent, the PETM and the one that probably most people are familiar with as the end of the dinosaurs. Can you give us a, a sense of what happened during those two extinctions, 55 and 66 million years ago? Yeah, okay. Well, KT, the impact event, the asteroid impact, has released massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere over a period which has been estimated as about approximately 10,000 years. In the case of the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, was a bit longer than that, but uh, still, this causes up, in the first case, a major, major mass extinction of more than 60% of uh, genera, living genera have uh, perished. In the second instance, the PETM, the extinction was less abrupt, but still major, mostly in the oceans. And it comes to show composition of the atmosphere can do to the um, living world, to species. Even though the rate now of the release of carbon dioxide is more than an order of magnitude faster. Uh, the reason is the uh, rise in um, temperature consequence on um, carbon dioxide release. This uh, immediately alerts us to the destructive consequences of the release of the changing transfer in the composition of the atmosphere at such an extreme rate. So in other words, we're pumping carbon dioxide or carbon equivalent products, methane and whatnot, into the atmosphere at a rate that is at least 10,000 times faster than the two previous extinctions? Do I have that right? 10,000 years 10, versus maybe 1,000? 10,000 faster. 10,000 is length of time, the number of years, it's at least an order of magnitude faster at the present time. What does this mean for the larger animals and the apex predators like us humans? You change the composition of the atmosphere, you change the temperature, you change most other parameters, including events such as fires and uh, storms and cyclones, and all the consequences of increasing temperatures in on land and in the oceans. If you increase it gradually, that's one thing, but if it's increased abruptly, many species cannot survive. You, you mentioned in your article that one of the things that might have caused 
the extinction 55 million years ago, the PETM, could have been a methane burp. Are you talking about like the clathrate gun hypothesis where the oceans warmed up enough that the f essentially frozen methane or methane frozen in crystal ice crystal lattices began to change phase, uh, you know, move from solid to gas and essentially came into the atmosphere? Or was that more like a melting of the permafrost and the tundra? That it was methane is suggested on the basis of the isotopic composition of the carbon which has been released at the time. A light isotopic composition, low 13 to 12 isotopic composition. Now, the source of the methane is still a problem. It was a massive injection, even though it went over 10,000 years or more than 10,000 years, which in terms of the biosphere was very fast, but still not as fast as what's happening now. Compare it or when you look at it in perspective of what's happening now, we have many hundreds of billion tons of methane locked in in the permafrost in Siberia and Canada and generally in the Arctic, which is already being released at very high rates. We now have close to um, 2,000 parts per billion of methane, which is powerful greenhouse gas. It's more powerful than carbon dioxide by a large factor. When you look at the comparison, we are releasing or the permafrost melting is releasing methane now at a rate which is once again faster than what happened during the geological events. What will the world look like for our children and grandchildren? We cannot tell, of course, that we don't have a crystal ball. But many species cannot survive such an extreme change in the composition of the atmosphere. There will be some which can survive, but there will probably be very primitive uh, forms of life as to mammals and so on. They suffer badly. No one can tell exactly to what extent, but they will suffer. My wife and I took a walk today along one of our country's major rivers, and there was a long stretch with a lot of flowers that were blooming. And 50, 60 years ago when I was a child, those flowers would have been covered with bees and flies. The air would have been filled with swallows, insect-eating birds. There would have been butterflies all over the place. We saw two swallows in the 40-minute walk. We saw one bumblebee and all the insects seem to be gone. Callers of mine, our program is broadcast nationwide. We get a lot of truck drivers calling in and they're, and they're telling stories about how 20, 30, 40 years ago as they drove across lush areas like Michigan or the American South, they would have to stop every five or six hours to clean the bugs off their windshield. Now they can go a week without cleaning their windshield. We've heard about the insect holocaust. Are these all the early warning signs that we are approaching biological disasters? That's a part of it. Uh, insects are affected. Uh, it was generally thought that insects or some insects are resistant to uh, climate change. But even here in Australia, or at least where I am, there are fewer insects, fewer flies, fewer mosquitoes. It's hard to say why the rise in temperature is affecting them to this extent, because, of course, there are a lot of insects in tropical regions. But it seems, as a direct observation, that there are, like you say, fewer insects. And this is one of the changes. It's a worrying change because, of course, insects have a major role in, in the biological world. Without insects, or with fewer insects, a lot of processes, including the uh, flowering of plants and so on, uh, hardly possible. It gives me the sense that we are living in a very, very difficult time around the edge of one. Finally, what is your advice to the world, to all of us? I mean, what what do we need to do? Where do we go with this? And for several months now, as a result of this virus, we have seen a radical decrease in emissions. Again, on my walk today, I didn't see a single jet trail, vapor trail in the sky, not one. Something I haven't seen since I was a child, or 9-11. You know, if we were to stay in this kind of frozen position, is this a start? I mean, where, where do we go? What do we do? Well, if civilization continues to dig and burn and meet hundreds of billions of tons of carbon from the Earth's crust and release it into the atmosphere. Civilization is changing what I would call the lungs of the Earth. If we breathe, which we do, higher concentration of carbon dioxide, we get very sick. It's called hypercapnia. That's the ratio of carbon dioxide to oxygen. 
The same goes for the entire Earth. The changing composition of the atmosphere is affecting the biosphere, whether it's plants or insects or animals. What do we do? Well, if the virus is going to end up making millions of people sick, which it does, then such an extreme change in the climate that we are witnessing now would make billions of people sick. What do we do? We need to recognize that it is a crisis. It's a crisis in the living world. And we need to elect governments which recognize it's a climate and do everything possible to try ameliorate it. The carbon dioxide concentrating in the atmosphere is already so high. It's higher by more than 40% than it was in pre-industrial times that it's not only that we need to reduce emissions, we need also to somehow draw down of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, sequester carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, as it's causing amplifying feedbacks from land and from ocean. If we can elect governments which understand it and act upon it, then we can try and reduce the damage. But at the moment, I don't feel particularly optimistic about it. Dr. Andrew Glickson with Australian National University, thank you so much for being with us. Karen in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Hey, Karen, what's up? article came out yesterday in Vice, and it's, uh, if you Google it, it's all over the net now, about how Governor Schneider had prior knowledge of how if they diverted the water from the Flint River, which was a toxic waste dump, to the citizens in Flint, that it would make them, if nothing else, ill, but possibly kill them. And he knew it before it was ever diverted. So this article is heavy in research. Yeah. But the big reason I'm calling is because the statute of limitations to charge Rick Schneider with um, neglect in office is up. And it would be really awesome if people could call the Senate Minority Leader in Michigan, Jim Ananick. Okay. And uh, request that. He's, I, apparently, he's working on trying to extend the statute of limitations. Because so the Rick Snyder can be prosecuted. Horrible. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. at least investigate it a little better. I mean, yeah. people even now are very ill, and it's killed many, many more people than it's advertised as. Well, not to mention the, 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 the brain damage, the, the, the intellectual impairment yeah. that it has inflicted on thousands and thousands of Flint children. Yes, it's horrible because once the lead is in your system, it's in there. And kids who used yeah. to be able to walk and run now have to literally crawl. And right. people are suffering. So it's just that's, obscene. That's incredible. It's just another yeah. another Republican grifter. This is what happens when you put Republican grifters into into positions of power. So if you live in Michigan, call the uh, the, the Michigan Senate Minority Leader. Yes. Amen. Karen, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Joe Biden has come out with the four C's of Donald Trump and coronavirus. Cover up, chaos, corporate favoritism and caving to lobbyists. I love it. I don't know if it's going to catch on, but uh, this is a memo that came out of Biden's campaign. Start using the four C's. Uh, Donald Trump engaged in a cover up for months. Uh, Then his administration just went to total chaos. These are my words, not theirs, other than the C words. And now they're they're trying to bail out their big corporations with corporate favoritism and caving into the lobbyists. And we are certainly seeing that. Milwaukee got badly damaged or well we will find out the damage so far it looks like 19 people were infected with the coronavirus trying to vote that's just what we know of probably it was you know hundreds uh we'll find out you know in the next few weeks and we will probably see some people die because they went to the polls and voted this is just so wrong so now the common council of milwaukee basically their city council voted unanimously yesterday to create a program under which all 300,000 registered voters in the city get a mail-in ballot. Period. Full stop. God bless you guys. And every state needs to be doing this. I mean, this is just one town. There's a new study out from the uh, University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute for Economics 
that found that, and I'm quoting from their study, these are the exact words from their study, quote, greater viewership of Hannity relative to Tucker Carlson tonight was strongly associated with a greater number of COVID-19 cases and deaths in the early stages of the pandemic. Mark Pocan said that Donald Trump will be remembered as a mass murderer. He's got the blood of over 40,000 Americans on his hands. It looks like that could be said of some of the Fox hosts as well. Back early on, Tucker Carlson was taking this a little more seriously. Hannity was ridiculing it. Hannity, of course, talks to Donald Trump real regularly, or at least used to. I assume it's still going on. But this study is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And it should be a warning to anybody who's allowing their parents to watch Fox News. You are putting people's lives at risk, in my humble opinion. Lee Fong, it's pronounced Fong, it's spelled F-A-N-G, is tweeting, and if you're not following Lee, you really should. He's brilliant. He's a great reporter. He's tweeting, the large for-profit hospital chain HCA spent billions on stock buybacks, paid its CEO over 108 million bucks in 2018 alone, pours ungodly amounts of money smearing Bernie's health plan and working to defeat Colorado's ambitious public option. And now they're getting an enormous bailout. They get $700 million dollars that does not have to be repaid, according to Bob Herman reporting on this and Lee Fong retweeting that. Remarkable stuff. The 71 publicly traded companies got paycheck protection funding before the money ran out. These are all companies that, you know, big companies where their stock is publicly traded. You've got multiple governors now that are reopening their states. Brian Kemp in Georgia, Greg Abbott in Texas, Henry McMaster in South Carolina, Bill Lee in Tennessee, Nebraska's Pete Ricketts. Why? I'm increasingly convinced that these governors are trying to reopen their states. I put that in scare quotes. In order to make it so that people who might otherwise qualify for state unemployment or other state aid to people who are involuntarily separated from their jobs can no longer qualify for that aid because they were voluntarily separated because the governor said, oh, no, there's no stay at home order. You can go to work. And people said, no, I don't want to die. Okay, you don't get unemployment. I believe that's their strategy right now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, 
And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You ever heard of a pyrocumulus cloud? Cumulus clouds are the thunderstorm clouds, you know, the big thunderheads. Those are called cumulus or cumulonimbus clouds. But a pyrocumulus cloud is a cloud, they have winds of, internal winds of more than 100 miles an hour and insanely intense heat, 700 degree heat. And they're happening all over the place, all around the world now. We never saw these things even five years ago. This one researcher says they're supposed to be as common as hobby horse poo. In other words, they're just not even supposed to exist. And they're happening all over the place. More than 30 of these pyrocumulus events have happened in Australia. David Bowen, professor of pyrogeography at the University of Tasmania, says this is a complete tipping point. Pyrocumulus events are meant to be as rare as rocking horse poo. Over the past three years, firestorms have developed in California, Russia, Portugal, and Canada. He says the models we've used are not working on these new types of fires. They don't even know how to model the weather that is being caused by these massive fires that are the result of global warming. He said, if you look at all the big fires in the world since 2016, there is a trend. It's an evolution of fire intensity. More than 10 million hectares have already been burned in Australia. A week or two ago, maybe a little farther back than that even, I played a, uh, I'm not sure it's a TV ad, a video ad. It's on, it lives over on YouTube at uh, andrewromanoff.com. It is uh, an ad for a guy who's running in the Democratic primary in Colorado, principally against Hickenlooper, good progressive, Andrew Romanoff, to become the Senate candidate who will take on Cory Gardner, I believe, this time around. I think so. And I want to play just a clip from it to begin with. This is just an extraordinary ad because it basically portrays a post-apocalyptic world. Here it is. The most destructive wildfire in the history of an entire town. This is the clear and present danger to life on Earth. This is uncharted territory. The strongest to ever hit the Officials are overwhelmed. At least three dozen tornadoes reported. Now, Nate, that was not the beginning of it, right? Now, it begins with a family in a bunker, as I recall. It tells this story. And it's just amazing. I wanted to get Andrew Romanoff on to talk about it. And he's on the line with us. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. I'm curious, first of all, did I have everything right about who you are and what you're running for and who you're going to be running against and all that kind of stuff? Yes, there are several candidates in the race. Governor Hickenlooper is the most prominent, recruited by Chuck Schumer, even though uh, Hick said he didn't want the job and wouldn't be good at it, and opposes most of the priorities that you and I share, like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. Hick's against it and based his presidential campaign demonizing progressives. He even compared us to Karl Marx and Joseph Stalin. Yikes. So uh, how's the response been to this apocalyptic ad? Well, we've gotten almost half a million views. As you said, people can find it at andrewromanoff.com. And the truth is, although you're right, the story begins in the not-so-distant future in a fictional scene. Most of the footage is current and real, just like the climate crisis. This is not a distant threat Mm -hmm. or the stuff of science fiction. And you only have to turn on the news, obviously, to understand what happens if we don't change course. Yeah. So tell me about the politics in Colorado. Colorado was a blue state, then it kind of became a red state, and then it kind of became a purple state. And now I'm not sure what the political scene is like there. Yeah, I tell folks the most important color in America is not red or blue, it's green. Uh, But we talk about that as well. So you're right. We've gone through some twists and turns. I led the Democrats here to our first majority in 30 years, our first back-to-back majority since the 1960s. That's how I became Speaker of the House. Uh, And the good news is Cory Gardner will lose to a Democrat this year. His approval rating is at 33%. He's actually less popular 
in Colorado, if you can believe it, than even Donald Trump is. Uh, So the question is whether we're going to replace him with somebody who shares some of the same views or a progressive champion, which I aim to be. There you go. Okay. I don't take positions in Democratic primaries unless they're in districts where I live or next door to where I live, where I know what's going on. So I can't. Do you I, want you to know, come, move to Colorado? Uh, <laughs> not this week. So I can't, you know, endorse you or anything like that. But I think I think it's great that, you know, as a bold progressive, you have risen through the House of Representatives there in Colorado to become the Speaker of the House and that you are now running for the Senate. And I just wanted to give you a hat tip and, and tell people to go check out your ad, because I, I would love to see more Democratic politicians doing this kind of creative, I don't think it's scare tactics. It's, it's more like, here's what's going on. And if, and if we don't do something, this is where we're going to end up. This is the hill we're sliding down right now. You're spot on. And people are dying now. This crisis is real. And we have a chance to lead. But we're not going to do that as long as the fossil fuel industry continues to bankroll both parties. We yeah. don't take fossil fuel money. Good on you. Good on you. Andrew Romanoff is the candidate. He is running in the Democratic primary for the United States Senate in Colorado. Romanoff, R-O-M-A-N-O-F-F 2020 is his Twitter handle. And of course, the website is andrewromanoff.com. Andrew, I wish you the very best. Thanks for dropping by today. Thanks very much, Tom. I appreciate it. Good talking with you. And when you check out his website, be sure to check out this ad and share it with your friends. It is just breathtaking. It's a work of art. It really and truly is. Our book today is Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jaxo, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm going to start with the last paragraph of Chapter 1, and then I'll start reading Chapter 2. In hindsight, the Fukushima incident revealed what has long been the sad truth about nuclear safety. The nuclear power industry has developed too much control over the NRC and Congress. In the aftermath of the accident, I found myself moving from my role as a scientist impressed by nuclear power to a fierce nuclear safety advocate. I now believe that nuclear power is more hazardous than it's worth. Because the industry relies too much on controlling its own regulation, the continued use of nuclear power will lead to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must all confront. Chapter 2. The Fukushima accident in Japan was not the first accident to belie the promise of nuclear power. In its early years, the commercial nuclear industry had only a limited understanding of the operations, science, and engineering of actual power plants. This ignorance led to the first major nuclear power plant accident just outside Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania, in 1979. Three Mile Island prompted a flurry of reforms and a pile of promises that the public would be protected from future nuclear calamities. Through the mid-1980s, it appeared these promises were being kept. Construction on new plants slowly resumed without major accidents. Then suddenly, strange radiation measurements were detected in Sweden. Governments in Europe and throughout the world soon learned that a disaster had occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. Like a developing photograph in a bath of chemicals, the reality of nuclear power was starting to come clear. One nuclear accident was an oversight, a mistake, an aberration. Two nuclear accidents hinted at a serious problem with the technology. A third would cement the conclusion that nuclear power plants were simply going to have accidents on a relatively consistent schedule. After Three Mile Island, after Chernobyl, the third accident nearly occurred in 2002 at the troubled Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant in Ohio. The problem is that with each new accident, all the people in charge of nuclear safety seemed to revert to the belief that this one would be the last one. As chairman of the NRC, I battled nearly every day against this instinct to believe that the worst was over. You can prepare for the next accident only if you get all the players to admit that a next one is coming, even if and when are impossible to predict. Before Fukushima, too many people I encountered simply did not believe the next one would ever come. Their view is not surprising. Accidents are rare in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. It happened decades earlier. Yet I continue to believe I could challenge this complacency. I seized one opportunity just after I became chairman. Four days before President Obama tapped me to lead the commission, I spoke at a conference organized by the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, an industry group of professionals entering the field as nuclear operators, designers of reactors, or academic experts in nuclear technology. As I looked out at the crowd, it dawned on me that many of these people had never lived through a nuclear power accident. Even if I had 
been only nine years old when Three Mile Island occurred. When Chernobyl happened, I was a teenager more worried about surviving my freshman year of high school than about nuclear disaster. The people I was speaking to were even younger. I wondered how they had experienced these seminal events. Being a scientist, I decided to conduct an experiment. I asked everyone in the audience to stand if they were born after 1979, the year of Three Mile Island. Nearly everyone stood. After they sat down, I asked them to stand if they were born after 1986, the date of the Chernobyl accident. Once again, nearly everyone stood. These industry-defining accidents have become dry case studies taught in college classes. The next generation of American nuclear power professionals has never experienced the confusion of a nuclear accident as it is happening. And so it's essential that we remember and teach the lessons of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl for reviewing these accidents shows common themes of missed opportunity, human failings, and technological overconfidence. No amount of forgetting can change these simple facts. The March 1979 accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania seems almost like something out of a science fiction horror film. The cover of Time magazine captured the national mood of chaos, confusion, and fear. The emergency red phrase nuclear nightmare slashed across the dark black cooling towers of the plant. There was no live-streamed video, as there would be after the Fukushima accident, but the public could imagine the scene inside the reactor. Just 12 days before the accident, The China Syndrome, a feature film starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas as reporters who uncover a major incident in a nuclear plant, had been released. Perhaps the hundreds of journalists gathered outside Harrisburg believed they too would land such a story. It started on March 28th at around 4 a.m. when a water pump stopped working. The failed pump affected the steam generators, large cylinders filled with many tiny metal tubes that help turn hot water from the nuclear engine into steam so that the turbines can generate electricity. When the flow of water was cut off, this massive heat exchange stopped working, creating the conditions for a serious accident. The reactor engine was immediately turned off, but so long as the reactor fuel remained hot, which it would for quite some time, its natural radioactive decay would continue, producing enough heat, called decay heat, to melt through the metal containers enclosing the reactor fuel. The same problem would later affect Fukushima. And then he goes through the whole process there. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jackso. I would just like to propose that people think about mealless Mondays. 14.5% of all climate change gases are caused by animal agriculture. And if we were to simply eat a purely plant-based diet one day a week, all of us, it would substantially help our planet. It would reduce a lot of suffering among fellow mammals and, and chickens and fish. And it would make us all healthier. <laughs> so. And, and you probably lose a little weight. So think about Meatless Mondays. Yeah, you know, Meatless Mondays is kind of a, it's becoming a thing now. You know, uh, there's ways to do this that are relatively painless. Josh in Madison, Wisconsin, listening on 92.7 FM. Hey, Josh, what's up? Hey, it's been a long time since I've called, but I've been listening to you seven years straight and still love you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, thank you. So you had somebody on that was talking about climate change and how we need to start talking about it. Yeah, that was Lila Connors, the director of this new movie, Ice on Fire, that you can see for free over at HBO.com. Yes. Well, I, an idea popped into my head when you guys were talking, and uh, every time I hear somebody talking about the effects of climate change, they talk about the Earth warming an average of one to two degrees Celsius in a certain amount of time. And I wanted to say, from now on, at least on American radio, we should really be talking about climate change in Fahrenheit. Yeah, I because agree. Because when you say one or two degrees to an American, it sounds like nothing. Yep. When you tell them that's 33.4 degrees we're talking about, it's a whole lot bigger of a deal. Well, <laughs> you know, one degree Celsius is about, what, 1.5, 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Maybe I was looking up the Kelvin conversion then or something. Yeah, it had to be. Yeah, you know, Kelvin, uh, absolute zero is like 400 below zero Fahrenheit and... and 
200 and so I, I don't even remember now, but, but yeah. But I agree with you. Or if we're going to cite Celsius because we're quoting something from the IPCC or whatever, in parentheses after it, we should put Fahrenheit. Because the world has, since the 1980s now, the world has warmed about one and a half degrees Fahrenheit. And that has been enough to cause massive destruction. We're seeing, you know, tree diseases spreading like crazy because the trees can't deal with the heat. We're seeing wildfires. We're seeing floods. The Arctic has warmed by, geez, you know, by three degrees Celsius would be, say, six, more or less five or six degrees Fahrenheit. And that's enough that, I mean, they've got 80 degree temperatures in the Arctic. I mean, if you go to Arctic dash, arctic-news.blogspot.com, you've got all the information there. It's a pretty grim scenario, Josh. And, and it's something that we need to be taking very, very, very seriously. So thanks yeah, a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Thank you. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank, and thanks for listening there in Madison, Wisconsin. So glad to be on the air there. This is the place where despair is not an option. We're going to do something about this crisis, all these crises we're facing. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.